Hello and welcome to Into the Wild, the podcast that brings you wildlife facts, conservation updates and nature stories from the professionals to you. This episode of Into the Wild is brought to you by Leica Sport Optics. If you're like me, money can be tight. I'm not rolling in it and yes, that's probably why I've got long hair. Save money wherever you can, right? So when it comes to binoculars, money is one of the restrictions. I don't always have the total amount up front and I could probably just pay it in dribs and drabs. Well, that's where Leica helped me. Leica have created a new way to shop. Introducing a 0% APR and a 9.9% APR on a large selection of items. Available online, this new program guarantees peace of mind when purchasing your bit of Leica kit. You even get to pick the right financing plan for you. You can read more about this program on the Leica Online Store UK. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Into the Wild. How are you all? Thanks for listening to the show. I hope you all had a lovely week. Um, it's finally rained, that's good news. We were all worried about a drought but now we've all been caught in the rain. <laughs> Can't decide whether I am happy or sad but nature's loving it so I guess I should be happy with that. Um, what's been happening in the last week? The Swifts are back and people are talking about them being back in London. Um but I've not, I've not seen any. Have you? Have you I seen? saw one. You saw one. I'm going over Parliament Hill this week. Parliament. Do, you haven't seen one. No, this oh. is uh, my girlfriend Christina showing oh, off that you um, saw. We're just recording. Should I be doing the show instead? Okay, that's enough. Right, let's get back to. But apparently they're back in Hampstead Heath, but Ryan's not seen any. But Christina's seen loads. I'm very disappointed. You know why? We've all learnt why. I don't look up. That's my problem. <laughs> I'm looking down all the time. Um, but they're back. Anyway, everyone's talking on Twitter and saying that they're back. So that's good news. Well, you know what time it is now? It's time for 60 second nature news. I've got four more stories um, that I'm hoping I can get done in 60 seconds. Okay, here we go. Deep breath. The World Land Trust a couple of days ago announced that thanks to donations, their goal of 360,000 was smashed finishing at 400,000 pounds to help protect a total of 49,000 acres of Tanzanian coastal rainforest, confirming that it now can be protected, keeping many species including elephants, lions, numerous primates and many migratory birds safe. The land was proposed for plantations but now will be saved for wildlife and managed by the local community of the Lindy district, creating opportunities and unlocking more livelihoods. Wow, smashing it and congrats to the World Land Trust. RSPB in Northern Ireland have confirmed the presence of now four calling corn crates on Rathlin, an island off the northern coast of Northern Ireland. Two pairs are established and now two are brand new. RSPB Northern Ireland on Twitter are keeping people updated with the progress. Chris Townend, Wise Birdin on Twitter, is looking like he and his volunteers that have been surveying bird nests and breeding birds have succeeded in preventing the clearance of scrub and tree cover during breeding season. Ensure to follow Chris on Twitter for updates, but looking like a huge achievement. And finally, ecologist and author Alex Moore shared what's happening with College Green in Bristol after years of the land being changed and soil removed, all wild flora had been taken away. But now thanks to a crowdfunder, work in April began sowing large and carefully selected wildflower seeds ready to bring back the life. That is the end of 60 Second Nature News. Okay, that was 60 Second Nature News. I'll get used to reading out that many stories that quickly. Um, Sorry if it's not 60 seconds. I don't time it. I just assume it's a very quick news bulletin kind of thing. Right, what's today's show about? Uh, This week, I spoke with naturalist, writer and ecologist Pete Cooper about cat.
captive reintroductions. It was a fascinating chat because myself and Peter started um, talking and then realised that we had had a very similar career working in zoos around the UK. So we got to have a bit of a, a really nice trip down memory lane about um, how our careers started and what we were doing. That was a really cool chat. And then um, we moved on to reintroductions, how they work, what we need to do and how we need to be careful with it and all the different bullet points are, are added into the mix of getting animals back into the wild and getting biodiversity back where it needs to be. It was a fascinating chat with Pete, a funny chat as well. There was a few jokes in there um, against his employer, Derek Gow, so look out for them. Um, but I hope you enjoy the show and I'll chat to you lot at the end. Pete, welcome to Into the Wild. Lovely to have you on this lovely Friday morning. How are you doing? Pleasure to be here. Uh, yeah, not too shabby, as can be in this current climate. Yeah, all good. You know, I, I don't know why I didn't bring this up when we first started talking. You, you look like you're in a Tudor-style house behind you. <laughs> <laughs> that is like the first square on my uh, Zoom bingo over the past year. Is it actually? Um, but yeah, it, it's true. Yeah, it does look like I'm in a room that's been haunted by the spirit of Anne Boleyn. <laughs> Pete, welcome to the show. Let's start with the obvious question. Thank Can you. you start by telling us who you are and what is it you do? So yeah, I'm Pete Cooper. Um, I am a ecologist and researcher with Derek Gow Consultancy, which is a organisation that specialises in native species reintroductions. So most of Derek's work has been around uh, water voles and beavers, as some people may know if they've read his recent book, Bringing mm-hmm. Back the Beaver. Um, much of my work mainly covers some of the other stuff, so some new projects we're looking at. Um, so a lot of that is focused on running the Harvest Mouse Reintroduction Programs, the National Trust, the property in Somerset. Doing a lot of work with uh, wildcats and investigating the possibility of reintroducing them to England. Uh, we were hoping to do some field work. I'm looking at ecological feasibility stuff this year, but unfortunately yeah. COVID's paid to that, but hopefully we can get on with that soon. One of the really interesting ones for me at the moment is trialing captive breeding of glowworms. Oh, cool. So I have them in a, a creature room upstairs. So <laughs> You've got I've a got tank some... full of glowworms yeah, yeah. in so your A few tubs, yeah, takeaway tubs, yeah. <laughs> so literally what you get from the Chinese, they are perfect for wearing glowworms. I've ordered a few takeaways that looks like there's glowworms inside. Yeah, they're quite dodgy, dodgy tummies in that, yeah, if your food's glowing. I'll, I'll get that checked out. But yeah, I've got them up there with, with snails, which are their sort of food source mm. as well. Um, I have got some harvest mice there, but not for breeding. All the breeding, the animals we release happens either at Derek's facility cool. in Devon um, or between other zoos. Uh, the ones I've got are basically education. Um, I have a few that I've bred for some films. So that's something I have done occasionally. I've also been an on-set wrangler for a, a couple of wildlife TV projects right. with hedgehogs and harvest mice. Literally in the call sheet, my uh, name is Pete Cooper, hedgehog wrangler. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it's great. He's the English so, Steve Irwin. Uh, yeah, not bits like that. Um, and, all, and that basically comes into a range of sort of different bits and pieces I've done. So, I mean, I've been working with Derek now for coming up to three years now. And that was, made that's, that's been part time, but, you know, we're doing some renegotiation now. There's a bit more work coming up. But I've also worked as a educational ranger at Wild, Wild Place Project, which is Bristol Zoo's second site in the meantime. I've done volunteering at various zoos as both a keeper and an educator for coming up to sort of eight years now. So I've a lot of experience in the zoo world mm. as well. And done ecology work with Derek and on a self-employed basis as well. Um, so yeah, I've, I've you know done dabbled in a few, a few different things, but basically focused on species directly. Um, and yeah, it's practical to make it. That's really, really cool. Uh, which is basically always what I've wanted yeah. to do, really. Being obsessed with nature my whole life. There was a brief phase where it wasn't my uh, career ambition when I was 13. It was a bit of a weird bit where I wanted to play Doctor <laughs> Who. But after that phased out, then yeah, it's back to nature. There was a brief blip and then it was back to nature. 
<laughs> yeah, pretty what much. What zoo did you um, work in as education? And did you say keeper as well? Um, yeah, so different, different zoos, really, um, on a voluntary basis, uh, although I have done uh, a bit of pay stuff for Derek. So I first started out as a zoo volunteer at Marble oh. Zoo, which is my local zoo, basically. Yeah. Uh, and it was basically my second home growing up. Uh, it was 20 minutes down the road and it was the most magical place. You, you know, this idea that you could drive through suburbia and the ordinary world as you know it. And then suddenly you'd come to this sort of almost <laughs> mythical land from an explorer storybook where there were giraffes and tigers yeah. and penguins, you know, not far from your house. It was just amazing when you were a child. So that really was my second home. And it, and it was actually where I uh, first found out about the fact that species were going mm. extinct and that conservation was necessary. Around all the exhibit signs back in the day at my world, I used to have a symbol of uh, it looked something like a wildebeest skull. It was sort of a very vague sort of bovid skull, white against a black background with endangered above it in sort of very threatening <laughs> Very letters. threatening, intimidating words. It was quite intimidating, yeah. And it always looked like something like a biohazard or was it dangerous? But no, it was to symbolise this was an yeah. endangered species. And they had this guidebook and had the symbol in a little fat box in very sort of serious font that would explain why the species was endangered via hunting or habitat loss or pollution or um, mm. invasive species or whatever. And obviously, when you're a child and you learn these wonderful magical beasts in your storybook are under threat like that, suddenly the world comes yeah. crashing down and this nice idea you create for yourself, everything will be fine, just sort of falls apart. Uh, and that's what really set me on my road. So to, so, so to a lot of um, zoo critics, I would say that, you know, yes, there are good zoos and bad zoos, but, you know, done well, they really can set people on the path, me included. Mm. So helping that out. Um, so eventually, yeah, I, I basically joined their youth club, which I was in from when I was about seven to 17, really. Started volunteering there as an education volunteer. Um, and I've done keep volunteering at New Forest Wildlife Park, which is more native species focused. Mm. And actually, funnily enough, it started, uh, or at least it was owned in a different guise uh, under different management by uh, Derek in the 90s, my current mm. boss now. Um, and he brought in a lot of the native species stuff, which the new owners sort of kind of carried on when I then volunteered there. And that's where a lot of my um, idea of focusing on native species came in. And equally, when I was there as a child, that's where I discovered that things like wild boar and lynx used to live in the UK. And that was like hearing that fairy tales were real, <laughs> yeah. that the woods behind your house suddenly had these yeah. great big, uh, again, sort of magical beasts. And I think that's basically what set me on my sort of path towards uh, native species and, and wilding, basically. In that that's really cool. It's, it's interesting to hear that you're kind of the realization that animals even could be endangered i guess growing up you don't really hear of it you learn about animals but you don't learn about the conservation on the threatened side of it um in regards to the habitat it was only mm. going to zoos that you start to i started to read those signs and then mm. my zoo career as well i worked at chessington zoo for seven years as a keeper mm. but then as went into the educational department and something we were really mm. kind of I wouldn't even say passionate. We saw it more of a, of a duty, as you said, to say that every single mm. enclosure, every single animal, it doesn't matter if it's least concern or what, needs to have this is what you can do. This is what you can do in your everyday life yeah. to kind of you know lower your impact on this environment. Yeah, completely, completely. And we went through with that because we, like you said, when it's done right, zoos can be powerful like that. And when the public presentations really capture oh, people, definitely, definitely, you can you can really yeah. instill some some change. And I think especially going forward, um, like you said, there's some terrible practices, but there are some mm. incredible practices on the other end of the, yeah. the spectrum as well. <laughs> and just out of interest, you say Chessington, because obviously that's you know very much a commercial mm. uh, man of swords. Um, the theme park is the main thing. Like, how did you guys sort of balance that out? Um, within this otherwise very commercial environment. It was interesting because, yeah, you had a battle. that it, it Its pros 
did outweigh its cons, I will say that, because the good thing about it is that there was money. So Mm. if we looked at, say, I worked in the aquarium for a bit with like the otters and the penguins, and if you needed a new pump, if you needed a new, you know, you needed some cement to redo it, you got it. There was no question about it because the money was there. Because uh, um, mm. Whereas my experience with other zoos is that money can be tight and you're recycling oh, a lot of... most definitely. Yeah, yeah you're yeah, recycling yeah. a lot of materials. So the benefit of working at a zoo that also had a more theme park attraction to it, you could, you had that money side. So I did, we did also notice that the welfare standards could, could increase quite a lot. The negative mm. side of that is, yes, like you just said, it's a theme park. So a lot of the time it's like, these tigers, let's have a ride go through it. And you're like, mm. oh, so no. it's, <laughs> you know, you are battling with that stuff. And it, it but yeah. it did have to be some give and take. Yeah, yeah. But the last project I worked on when I was there was a drive through safari experience, mm. which it was done well. It was done well. Um, the mm. enclosures were very good. The, the ride was a bit near, but the, it, mm. the enclosures um, were big and the giraffe have, mm you know a lot of space and they can pretty much go where they want and same with the rhino they've got like over four paddocks i think outdoor paddocks the rhino had so yeah it, it was it was interesting it was good but it was it was challenging it did have its different challenges yeah. that i think normal or uh, regular zoos don't quite have yeah i mean it's a very interesting very varied world i mean you know the zoos that i've volunteered in were all generally quite sort of small scale so mm-hmm. places like new forest wildlife park and well with the, with the exception of Marl zoo um and uh, Isle of Wight Zoo, places like that. So, yeah, it was very much, as you say, trying to work out where the budget can go to this and yeah. you know, lots of difficulties there. But equally, once you get to a zoo of a bigger size, um, so obviously Wild Wild Place Project, uh, which is the Bristol Logical Society, um, which is an interesting place because, it's, as its name suggests, it's very new. Mm. Um, it's only been opened since 2013. And it's a very sort of small staff family. So, you know, all the keepers, education staff, maintenance staff, guest services are all using the same lunchroom. It's yeah. very much a nice family atmosphere. Whereas you go 50 minutes down the road to our sister site, Bristol, which is a much smaller site, it's 12 acres, but operates far more like a typical big zoo. And the you know, department's very much more segregated. Yeah. And there's still, even though it's a conservation charity and sort of devoted to this cause, it still runs like a business. And equally, there are still then difficulties there. And obviously, you know, COVID's been a huge thing in shifting that around because, you know, now this Clifton site is going to close and it's mm-hmm. moving all up to Wild Place. But yeah, again, it's a very interesting um, counterbalance there because suddenly you find the, the more it becomes a too many cooks thing. Um, so even though, yeah, you do have you know, very high welfare standards, um, and all the rest of it, things can get lost in decision-making processes oh, sometimes. But it's nothing's perfect, eh? The last thing I'll say with... um, And, you know, I don't work with them anymore, so I can just out them and mm. say the problem with the... When I was there, you know, to 2010 forward for about seven years, was um, you would have the ideas we were battling against to mm. create, and we were just as keepers going... You, you just can't do that. You, you can't. So when we were building the, African well, it's, it's, area, it's a classic like drains, isn't it? Yeah, you know, yeah. you can never find a zoo like a, a proper drain. Can you? What were we? It was when we were building. It was called Zufari. It was the African area, and I actually went onto the rides department to manage that area for it because I was in the education side at mm. that point. So I went over to the rides area to manage it from a ride and an operational perspective, but to put mm. some zoo knowledge in it. And I remember being in the meetings, and they just said. You know, one species, uh, these, these were the managers going, the one species we'd like to get into this attraction is the African hogs. And we were like, you can't do that. <laughs> and they were like, why not? I went, because it will absolutely run back in right. You can't yeah, do that. Completely. And they were like, why? I was like, you're having big, like, ex-army trucks drive round and you're having mm. cattle grids in between the paddocks. The hogs are just going to breed. Their babies are going to run everywhere. They're going to attack mm. things. 
Um, mm. But they were adamant. It took us a good two months to talk about that decision, and it was so close to yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's what we want. And we were like, yeah, <laughs> like breathing, like oh. stop this. So that was also the other battle. But it's like all things, you know. I think you know, good zoos are still needed. You know, it's just a sort of balance things out. But it's just need to make sure that you know keepers really do have a say on, on how things like closures are designed because things that aren't just thought about, for example, it's something as basic as ensuring a cat species has privacy. Uh, and not a path going around the entirety of his enclosure. So completely often overlooked. Mm. Um, you know, I think it's Gerald Durrell who said that, you know, one of the most dangerous animals to have in a zoo is an architect. Um, because <laughs> yeah, you know, like they're going to be going for sort of form over function completely. I mean, you know, the, the, elef- the old elephant rhino house at London Zoo is case in point of that. I mean, when it yeah. built in the 1960s, it was all about the brutalism architecture that's fashionable at the time. But people were saying like, right, your elephant's going to fly up and suspend themselves in the rafters because there was, you know, far too much height and not enough width. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Despite the fact it was dealing with several ton pachyderms. But there you go. Exactly. And it's, um, I think, I, I always said like, when I used to go to zoos with friends, I was like, the best zoos are the zoos where you struggle to find the animal. Yes, completely. Let's get on to reintroductions and rewilding because I asked Derek this question, mm. but I'm interested to hear what you kind of have to say in your words. When we talk about rewilding and reintroductions, and to refresh my listeners, I guess, in your own words, what do those two things mean to you? Well, rewilding and reintroductions mm. are two different things. I want to make that clear because there is a lot of complaints at the moment. Um... And I think it does tie into a broader problem that is occurring right now in that because rewilding is getting a lot of mainstream attention and because it seems a fashionable thing to do, it has kind of been hijacked by to be applied to what is basic conservation practice, even mitigation practice. And a really good example of this that came out this week, which I'm sure you're aware of, was uh, HS2 <laughs> saying that we're rewilding um, this sort of section of arable fields along the line. To be fair, it does sound more wilding-esque than previous attempts that they want to create a NEP-like environment. But even NEP is what you might like to term rewilding light, because although it does sort of work in that philosophy of giving nature the driving force and you know, without any sort of straight targets, they do still have the target of wood pasture. Um, so Charlie Burrell, for example, he doesn't put in too little livestock so that it succeeds mm. to woodland, but he doesn't put in too many that it you know, DCs okay. to grassland. Um, the management has kept it level to maintain that wood pasture. So it is still a target, uh, I mean, in effect, even if it does have this sort of wilding philosophy. And that does seem to be what they're going for here. But there is a lot of talk about, you know, seeding wildflowers. And if you're going to do wildflowers, it's di- I think it'd be difficult to maintain them purely with grazing. I mean, they're going to have to do some sort of, you know, mowing management of some sort. So it's it's just standard, standard mitigation. Especially at the beginning, surely. Exactly, definitely at the beginning. And of course, at the end of the day, it's mitigation of a tiny piece of land for a abominable <laughs> amount of destruction that HS2 is causing. And, you know, it's it's kind of greenwashed to earth's effect. And I do I feel really sorry for the ecologists that are, you know, doing this plan. They're trying their best. I know. But as soon as you start working with HS2, you know you're going to be in for shit. Um, and you're and you basically you've seen as contractors for the empire, basically. I saw it and I, was, I just pissed myself laughing because I... It was the equivalent yeah. of someone going, I've knocked your house down, but here's a brick. And you're like, great. Well, thanks for yeah. that. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, completely, completely. It's kissing the corpse mm. completely. So, yeah, reintroductions have been done for, you know, nearly over half a century now. And they're, they're increasing in, in practice, mm. but they aren't rewilding themselves. They can be part of a rewilding scheme. You may have a broader rewilding initiative. And part of that may be sort of reintroducing his missing species uh which you know have a key role um but it's not rewilding in itself i mean there's reintroduction programs who require management which is way beyond the the uh philosophy of rewilding yeah. so the reintroduction of large blue butterfly is a really perfect casebook example of that 
you know, to ensure you've got habitat for these reintroduced large blues to thrive, you've got to basically blitz uh, downland to ensure it's a really uh, short sward height, mainly for sheep grazing, which is the antithesis of rewilding, yeah. uh, if, you, if you go by George Monbiot's feral, which, you know, allows this particular species of ant to thrive, and that ant is the host for the larvae of the large blue. So, yes, the reintroductions in themselves are not part of rewilding. Um, dormice as well, you know, obviously coppice woodland is a big part of maintaining habitat for reintroduced dormice. Maintaining uh, heathland is a big part for reintroducing uh, sandlizards. Mm. So they can be part of it, uh, but they aren't in their own right. And I think reintroductions of a rewilding value don't necessarily base themselves on reintroduction from a conservation of the species perspective. So, you know, reintroducing bears, uh, sorry, sorry, wolves and beavers, that's a better example. Mm. Uh, wolves and beavers are least concerned if you look at their global status. So from a conservation perspective, you know, apart from a local perspective where they've been wiped out locally, mm. there's no conservation imperative to do that. What they've been reintroduced for is to replace a function. Yeah. So I think there will be this sort of increasing dividing set criteria, I predict, between reintroductions that are done for conserving a piece of biodiversity, which may require sort of ongoing management, between reintroducing stuff to create a function, um, whereby it's more helping the wider ecosystem than it is helping the species. Reintroducing water voles, for example, okay, there's a conservation function if they've gone extinct locally, but a big side of that is also creating that functionality as a food source and as a creator of macro-scale habitat. I mean, water vole burrows are extraordinary you know, habitat for things like um, crayfish and small mammals and amphibians. You know, having done some uh, ecological mitigation work uh, with Derek, it feels a bit like you're the baddie in Fern Gully <laughs> when you're having to supervise a destructive search of a river bank when you're literally having to dig a sort of scrape away at the bank. You can hear the Isengard music <laughs> Amazing in your head. Amazing um, <laughs> you know, At least you do, you are there to say, stop, if you see something run out yeah. and then you just have to go grab it or, you know, with your hand or with a net. But these burrows of water voles are spilling with life. Um, so it's a really undervalued part of the wetland ecosystem. They're almost like a mini beaver, not nowhere near the same dramatic scale yeah. as a beaver, but within the macro sense, mm. you know, they do have their role of, of creating habitat too. So yeah, I think we need to, you know, create a distinction between reintroductions that are done for conserving species and for restoring rest, rest, a function. Or there is obviously you know, some overlap as mm. well. That's that's I've never heard anyone put it like that before because I guess yeah like, like the beavers are perfect I think it's a perfect example for that like you said like globally mm. least concern but mm. you know you look at mm. the what they can create and you're like well globally that yeah. is a concern because we don't have that you know so it's like that yeah, that is a form and, and what it can bring back you know I guess if we look at it from yeah. that. So it's almost like a problem solver species and, and adding layers back in. I bet you ten pounds that when you had Derek he said the. Beaver is not about bringing back a species. It's about distorting a force of nature. <laughs> that's what he always says. And that's it's very true. That is the most incredible impression I've ever had on the show. It's been far too long work of that, man. I genuinely, if I'd closed my eyes then, I would have been like, Derek? Derek? You're, I think your house, your Tudor house, is haunted by the spirit of Derek. <laughs> Is he dead? <laughs> well, no, but his spirit is just there. Well, I hope not. There's a touch wood there. <laughs> he's just, he's just there anything. in your house. <laughs> that was such a surprise, Peter. You can't just throw out impressions like that with no... <laughs> I went on Blue Peter to do Gollum once, yeah. Did you? It's a little side skill. Yeah, well, I was um, 11 years old. Um, <laughs> they had a website, they were like, do you do impressions? I like, I'll do impressions. So I did a Gollum impression down the phone. I said, all right, come on then. Um, Go on. So I went on the show and did, a, did it... Did it Stupid fat from us. There are so many things that listeners were not expected in this show. Well, I think I've just found the clip I'm using to advertise the show. 
Um, well, yeah, if a conservation gig doesn't work out. Yeah, yeah, you never know. Sweet. So what, like, what animals, talk about animals and the different things they can do if you bring them back or you, you when you rewild mm. the land. What areas or animals are you most optimistic about for England to to be brought back? Um, for England, uh, and really the UK specifically, I think the southwest. I mean, it might be a bit biased, given the way it's Union Cornwall, I live in Bristol, I've had a lot of family connections here, but it's genuinely quite an optimistic area. And the east as well, so East Anglia. I think those two regions uh, really do have quite a lot of potential. They both quite neatly fit this middle ground in the, in the, in the UK context. Um, they're not the most populated areas of England, certainly. Um, but from a global context, they are very much high density population. So they give a really good place to basically see how you can sort of coexist with nature mm. and, and wild nature at that. The southwest is got this amazing variety of habitat. You know, you've got the Somerset levels all the way through to the sort of moorlands in Exmoor and Devon and this incredible sort of coastline and woodland valleys in Cornwall, which, you know, if given its full potential, the Atlantic rainforest that you do still yeah. see in these wooded valleys can really expand from. And while I was at uni, and I had like a patch, which actually I discovered when I was doing a placement at the Seal Sanctuary a year or two before, just below the um, the B&B where I was staying, which is lovely, sort of relatively un- untouched Atlantic uh, rainforest uh, woodland valley. And it was just gorgeous, gorgeous habitat. And have that sort of mm. spread out and given a chance to be spectacular. The Lizard Peninsula is just incredible. It's Mediterranean, it's climate. So some of the plant diversity you get there is wow. unmatched and you know really has a lot of potential. And again, you know, quite low density. So I think there is we've got a lot of uh, potential for wilding large areas of land, um, for when Elms comes in, you know, a lot of the, ag- the agriculture there is becoming increasingly uh, uneconomic and there's really some good opportunities for sort of nature-based recovery, I think. Beastry introductions, of course, you know, the beavers are a given, um, the way they're sort of spreading through Devon and Cornwall. There's plenty of niches for some of the large raptors to be reintroduced. Uh, it's the optimal place to reintroduce wildcat in the UK. And obviously there's a lot of work we're looking at there. And we should actually work at the University of Exeter looking at the sort of feasibility uh, from an ecological and social viewpoint oh, of that. So it's a really good place to sort of kickstart that. And I think, you know, effectively, you know, could almost sort of match Scotland's wildlife mm. in the future um, as we restore and things both naturally recolonised but are also reintroduced. And East Anglia, I think, really has that advantage because of the wetland scale we have there. I mean, wetlands have this amazing uh, potential for wildlife. I mean, if you go back to a pre-farming point of view, you know, the Britain was mostly woodland, but the wetlands basically would have been a sort of hub of life where the the physical processes of flooding um, would have meant that there's a more varied vegetation in more open areas, more floodplain valleys. And that would have allowed the activities of things like beavers, but also the arox, you know, the extinct wild cattle, to be sort of more emphasised. And that, certainly that's where we found all the arox bones come from floodplains. If you look at the stabilised analysis mm. of their bones, you know, their diet suggests they were feeding in floodplains because that's where you're going to get the highest availability okay. of grass. And it would have been these real hubs of life. So I think to um, you know to recreate some of that in, in East Anglia uh, would be super spectacular. It'd be superb. And obviously that's one of the goals of Wild East. And yeah, and in terms of species, I mean, you know, I think that the beavers are given. Derek will explain that very well in his podcast. I could talk about lynx, but I think it's been very well explained elsewhere why we need to talk <laughs> the lynx as a top predator back. So I'm, I'm going to say that, you know, um, for a species I'd like to see back in Britain, it would be the Dalmatian pelican. A Dalmatian pelican? Dalmatian pelican, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, what two uh, they great went... words to slam together. I know, right? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, oh, I mean, I'm not going to lie, that's exactly no, where my spotty. mind is just gone. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a very, very boring answer, though. I think you found along the Dalmatian coast, ah, basically. Right, okay. But 
But historically, there's been a study about five years ago that needs genetic work on pelican bones. There was a very wide population um, in the northwest mm. of Europe. So you had pelicans in Britain, in Germany, in Denmark, and in the Netherlands. And we have bones from both East Anglia and from Somerset. And the bones from the Somerset levels, although these Anglian bones haven't been uh, dated for radiocarbon, they're estimated to be um, at least within certainly after the ice age so they are holocene bones and the ones from somerset from the glassby lake village which are iron wow. age so about 2000 2500 years old 3000 years old and there were young birds which indicates that they were fledglings so they weren't just visitors mm. from the continent they were breeding in the uk uh, and what they found in the lake village amongst all these other bones that have been eaten by people suggests that they were being eaten too and if you look at uh, the fracture pelicans habitat loss okay there may have been a bit of that because there was some drainage of the wetlands to start when the Romans arrived, but it only really happened on a large scale in the 16th century in the Fenland, certainly. So there still would have been plenty of good habitat for pelicans right up until then. Uh, we know they weren't here till then uh, because there's no bones, there's no mm. cultural evidence. And there was still plenty of coastal habitat as well. They will forage uh, around coastal habitats too. They breed in fresh water, but they'll forage on the coast. So habitat loss is probably unlikely. Climate change, well, actually, the climate was pretty much what it's like today, uh, around the point that pelicans are still here around the Iron Age, both here mm. and in Northern Europe. They actually breed better in milder winters with more rainfall, which is yeah. more like what we have today. Uh, that's actually what they're doing better with climate change, because we're seeing these wetter winters, which look encouraging to breed early and have higher breeding success. Um, so actually, clim climatologically, you know, we're pretty mm. well suited. So hunting by humans does seem yeah. the most likely option um, because they're a bird that breeds colonially. So if you know there's a pelican colony, you can wipe them out very quickly. It's a big bird with a lot of meat. Um, it's a very reliable food source and they don't tolerate disturbance very well. So yeah, dis so disturbance from human hunting does seem like the most likely factor for their extinction across uh, Northern Europe. Yeah, if we, if we can evaluate whether there's enough breeding habitat, in, basically in the Fenlands is where it's going to be but there's certainly enough feeding habitat, then I think the Dalmatian pelican would be a really spectacular uh, reintroduction in terms of engaging people and being a figurehead for wetland restoration. Um, I'm a big fan actually now of you know using figurehead species to engage people because at the end of the day, we do have to look into human nature and the fact that you know we do like something big and showy to sort of direct attention towards something. If you have the pelican to sort of act as that focal point, so all right, you want more pelicans, you need to increase mm -hmm. our wetland capacity. That does so much more for other species and wild habitat conservation. And the fact that it is globally near threatened it was globally listed as vulnerable until a few years ago it was downlisted because they had some fantastic breeding success in southeast europe um and greece and um macedonia and places like that but it is still you know on the edge you, you know near threatened is still not a place you want to be so being able to in increase uh or restore the northwest population so not just in britain but in denmark and the netherlands as well um to increase that species security would be a really good Amazing. thing to do particularly with the climate change yeah. going as it yeah, is. Yeah, that, that's a really cool species. I didn't even know that species existed. So and like when you said if people are eating them, it kind of starts putting you down that thought of like, well, that's where they've that's where they've gone. <laughs> like if, if there was proof yeah, of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I asked Derek this question. Mm. I think you're going to share the same answer. I'll, I'll see, <laughs> see, see what you yeah. say. I asked Derek about wolves. I love wolves, always have loved wolves. And I said, you know, mm. wolves question mark <laughs> and yeah. went, yep. do you share the same eagerness <laughs> with wolves in england yeah but it's a question of mm. time i think because the the wolf you know if you go completely by a biological perspective 
the habitat in the UK on a widespread scale is far more suitable than yeah. it is for lynx. Because um, if you look at Europe, I mean, Derek probably said it, they're, they're moving right through habitats that look like the yeah. edge of Kent. You know, there's photos of wolves coming out from Belgium and the Netherlands where they're walking past, you know, silage bales <laughs> wrapped up on the side of a dodgy hedgerow with some fly tipping going on beside it. It's as far from remote wilderness yeah. as you can get. And, and they're well, walking through it because well. they move fast and there's food. Completely. Yeah, the, the Germans say, just think of them like road deer or foxes. You know, they, they will tolerate human landscapes very well as long as there's food, which is deer, and sometimes sheep, unfortunately. And that's where it comes into the social aspects and why it will be a question of time. So, yeah, they will move through these habitats very well. Basically, when a, a wolf gets a dispersal point, the pack increases by uh, maybe sort of three, four, five generations too many. And mum and dad say, right, oldest mm. lot, go away. Uh, about nine in 10 will try and establish a pack quite close to the home uh, home range of their existing territory. But one in 10, two in 10 will just go kablamo and they will travel for miles and miles and miles. And that's why you've had wolves that have been collared in Italy being found in oh, Spain. Okay. And that partially explains why they were here until quite late. You know, they were harder to wipe out because a wolf in Cornwall could be a wolf in Scotland in a couple of weeks' time. But it does also show that they can move through landscapes quite readily. Uh, and as long as they've got a little copse to hide up in for the night... Uh, a bit of food they would do fine but from a social point of view it is the big bad wolf it is the epitome of our fear of nature of things that have been sent to our genes mm. from for millions and millions of years you know i had this sort of really interesting point of view so you know why we have the game what's the time yeah. mr wolf where you sort of turn your back and then something gets closer you know that is the, the hunting strategy of big cats for example so when we were evolving as apes in the savannah uh, that's what we're afraid of, something that sort of gets closer each time we're not looking at it. And because that's been hardwired into our genes for millions of years of evolution, that has been the primal base of that game. What's the time, Mr. Wolf? Or this fear of something getting closer. Like the, you know, to go out to Doctor Who, <laughs> the Weeping Angels in Doctor Who, that's probably why they're so terrifying. It's like it gets closer when you're not looking at it because it taps into that very mm. primal fear. So wolves are just really symbolic of that. And overcoming those is going to be massive. You know, they have killed people in Europe, but certainly nowhere near as many as uh, those would like to claim and they've pretty much all been cases of rabbit wolves as well so they are not a threat to people in the same way but the fact that it's a perceived threat is, mm. is still there they are a very real threat to livestock so that will need a change in how we farm it will need people back out in the fields um, working as shepherds again it will need stock being brought in at night complete upheaval to how we farm people who live in wolf country do this anyway but it's an established part of life for them it's routine it's not routine for us and we don't like change particularly the further away we've gone from it as a generation that's why it will be a very long cultural discussion but it should be a discussion that should go in now very sensibly and not trivialized because that's again part of the problem is it's become a very trivial discussion you've got pro-wolf people saying bring back all the wolves and that will solve all our problems um, and it'll be like the last scene of Lion King when the landscape turns from horrible and skeleton-like yeah. when Scar rules it to lovely and green when Simba rules it that wolves will do just that it'll be fine uh, they sell everything to the other camp going wolves are going to kill everything it'll be the destruction of life as we know it babies will be taken from their cots and all that kind of thing it's become this very trivial discussion which has kind of edged out any place of rational debate on these issues. If you look at the timelines and the basis that we do need to restore the natural world, you know, as quickly as we can, because we need to restore a nature that is as fully functioned as we can before the full effects of climate change takes shape and who the hell knows how that's going to play out. But equally, you know, something that will be released but not be killed as soon as it yeah. gets released. That, cause that's the issue here. You know, it's an animal welfare issue. Like, yeah, okay, you can go and release wolves now. Just know that those wolves are going to be shot and that's, you know okay it's the blood on who's shot them directly hands but it's also mm -hmm. the blood in your hands you know you see this issue now with uh with, with bears in spain 
where, you know, there's massive farmer protests um, to the government of France about bears who have been released, you know, without proper consultation in their view. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bloodbath, yeah. basically. You know, it, it really is. You really have to engage more with the social sciences than you do the uh, biological sciences when it comes to large carnivores. And that's something that the new Lynx project is doing really well, the one that's been run by Scotland the Big Picture uh, in association with Trees for Life um, and the Vincent Wildlife Trust, the latter of whom are the best people you can have on your side for the social aspect of things with carnivores in this country, based on the brilliant work they've done with the Pymarts in Wales. Because they are looking at the people side of things now, they've admitted quite openly that they don't need to look at the ecology. There have been um studies in the past you know such as you know uh, david heverton's mm. phd work which had looked at the ecological feasibility of links in scotland and i said yeah absolutely fine it's a social side of it now and that's what they're doing is they're doing this long year long at least social study not in the whole uk so you get a bias of people who aren't going to be affected by links going yes yeah. links great which is one of the problem one of the many problems with the other links project which you won't <laughs> delve into too much at the moment but it's focused on the people who live there on the ground getting yeah. their views across um, and that's exactly how you do it because the links compared to a wolf is a far less difficult proposition you know it's far it's not a threat to humans it will take sheep but very very few even fewer if you're not hosting your sheep in small flocks in woodland which is why they have lots of links kills in norway because their farming system is very different. They are driving small flocks through woodland where the lynx can do its thing of being an ambush predator against close as it can and then catching them. If you have a big flock in a big open field, that's not what a lynx is going to want to hunt. But again, it's a large predator. It has the this social baggage attached to it and you need to work hard on that. It's that same thing that we see, I guess globally, isn't it? If you don't fix the problems in the wild, there's no mm. point trying to reintroduce or to rewire because it's just going to, the same problems are going to reoccur. And I think what mm. you said there is... Yeah, yeah, yeah is key for global conservation is talk to the people that are living it like we're all allowed a thought yeah. process on these things but it's like unless you're there experiencing it mm. those are the people we should be talking to going like look what do we need to do how, how can we do this and work together um there are yeah. folk in the conservation and the, the professional and the academic conservation and ecology world that are I'll just use the word critical. I was going to try and re reword it, but I'll just use the word critical of these kind of yeah. practices from, you know, certain reintroductions and uh, the rewilding movement. Um, and, for, you know, mm. they're, they're all valid questions, but we have seen over the last, I'd say, few months, some quite critical paths of thinking, mm. I guess. What's your response generally mm. when you, you see people kind of being critical of these kind of ideas and ways of working with wildlife? So, yeah, I think it comes to broad camps, so you've, you've got the criticism you see from always the places you expect it with, such as you know, farming lobbies, fishing lobbies. Uh, and that, that deals with more of your sort of larger animals that are going to have quite significant impact, yeah. like beavers or large predators. And those are very justified and you can sort of work through these. And uh, I think a lot has been done on that. One thing I've seen more of recently um, is critique from within yeah. conservation circles and often applies to things that, you know, farmers aren't really that bothered about, like the smaller mm. stuff. And, if, if, and I think it's just more of a general unsurety or mistrust of reintroduction as a practice mm. as a whole, cats breeding in particular. I think a lot of that is down to unfamiliarity. Reintroductions uh, and certainly cats of breeding are very rarely covered in a lot of the uh, degree courses that you know a lot of people do. So it certainly wasn't really covered in mine either. And if it is given a bit of thought, it's used as a practice and it's done, but also say, oh, but they can often have lots of failures, da da da, da which is generally even based on some mm. of the older work. There have been more recent successes because it, it is rapidly developing, rapidly changing. And it is still a relatively new practice. But I think unfamiliarity can come into form of that quite a lot. But I think it's this idea of like, if something's failed before, it shouldn't be tried again. Because often it's a case of you don't make the same mistake yeah. twice. 
I don't know if Derek explained it while he was in your podcast, but waterfalls, for example, mm. um, are a species which, you know, we now breed, you know, over a thousand a year. We've really established a good captive breeding reintroduction protocol. Post-release monitoring shows it works and all the rest of it. But when he started out, you know, actually at that, that new forest wildlife centre I talked about earlier, um, when he was uh, running the show there back in the 90s, that's when he started breeding water voles. At that time, the water vole only just started, be, um, well, it was only realised it had undergone decline uh, of a really significant factor. So, you know, Derek was like, right, we're going to try cat to breed and see if we can breed enough to reintroduce. And they had no idea what they were doing because no one had really done it for this sort of method before, you know, but a bit of it had been done for sort of lab studies, but that's about it. When they tried putting water voles into big enclosures that were landscapes look as natural as possible, because they thought, right, that's going to be great. And we'll put loads of them in there so we can get lots of babies out of them. But A, functionality, it's very hard to monitor water voles in enclosures like that. And they just dug out anyway. And B, behavior, uh, water voles are very territorial in the breeding season. Uh, they put lots of different water voles in there and they just killed each other. And if you were a manager and you've seen that, you might think, oh, it's, we can't catch three water voles. Yeah. So it's not going to happen. Quit it all. But because the situation was so dire, they thought, no, we're going to not, not make that same mistake twice, but we're going to try something different and eventually fine tuned it to the system you've got today, which worked perfectly, which is where you have an enclosure that isn't going to win uh, any awards for artistic, artistics. It's basically, a giant hutch that's about you know six foot uh, long by four foot high uh, by four foot wide, uh, but it has a deep layer of wood chips so the voles can burrow, a nice big uh, bale of straw so they can mm-hmm. go in there and make nests uh, that's covered by some corrugated mm-hmm. iron to sort of replicate the river bank, with a little tray of water as well. One pair in there, that's all you need. And then as they have offspring, you take the offspring out, uh, the first lot um, out for release, and then you keep the second lot in over the winter, do sort of further breeding from that. So it can work. And with a lot of species as well, um, yes, you know, reintroduction, it can have a lot of um, cost to it. It can be costly in its own right. So you should look at other avenues. And the habitat restoration and you know reconnecting corridors is often a big thing. But in many cases, the animals just aren't there. They aren't very good at dispersing or the gene stock is so low that you're going to have some sort of assistance needed, to be honest. And you can't just rely on waiting for the habitat to be restored um to do that for you um and particularly with the things uh that, that you can't fly yeah. or, or move long distances very readily um so you know, mammals and herptofauna and certain insects come into that um and that's you know why we're doing this stuff for the glowworms because the glowworms are actually a very good candidate for reintroduction because they are such poor dispersers they basically have a life cycle it's about two years but the vast majority of that is as a larva so only about a month of that is as an adult uh while they're an adult the female moves you know, a max of a meter in her lifetime. Basically, she you know glows there at night and then goes to lay her eggs and then oh dies. Uh, the males have yeah, the males have wings, so they can fly a little bit, but they can disperse a little bit. But they're really weak flyers. They don't go on nights where it's damp or humid. They stay quite low to the ground, and obviously are limited by where the females are. Um, so there is that factor as well. And most of their dispersing is done as a larva, where they have this intense phase where they can move. You know, if they've got a clear ring, maybe maybe a kilometer or two, but not much more than that. Um, so if you have a glowworm population that is cut off and isolated and that dies out, that's pretty much gone for good. You often find glowworm populations correlated with old railway lines because the railway lines, um, A, they act as a really good dispersal corridor, but B, they also have good snail populations. Oh, interesting. But outside of that, it's, it's going to be very difficult. And John Tyler, who is, you know, the UK glowworm expert, literally wrote the book, The Glowworm, <laughs> it's called. Uh, you can buy it on all good natural history bookshops. Um, nice to plug for John there. You know, but far back as then, you know, he was saying that actually maybe we should look into this idea of storing populations of glowworms have gone extinct or look at populations where habitats are created newly. Um, but I think because there's this general 
uneasiness around reintroductions, more from a, a personal philosophy point of view, uh, often from, than from a scientific point of view. That's not really been looked at until we've done it. Um, and there was a little bit of um, ooh, from some of the global community when you know some of the plans came out um, not by my willing I was actually rather we just kept quiet about the global stuff while we developed the captive mm. breeding technique so we knew something worked first and then talked about the possibility now we knew we could captive breed them and we can't we have uh, honed the technique now thanks to the efforts of private breeders <sighs> hasten to really? actually private breeders I think Harvey might have talked about it are a really valuable source because they, they, they're often specialists mm. they know their species well and we talked about zoos earlier you know zoos bring in a lot of things but they sometimes can fall by the wayside in the fact they're dealing with lots of different things at once yeah so true uh, and maybe don't have the chance to specialize in certain species so private breeders been really valuable on that front but yeah with, with that unfamiliarity that's not really something that's been looked at again with glowworms we we know that their populations are now uh, declining in, in distribution across the UK. There is now peer-reviewed science that came out last year that's verified that. We know they don't disperse very well, but also there's phenomenal engagement potential. Uh, and just going back to what we're talking about with uh, pelicans, the glowworm is something that has captivated civilizations since the time of the Roman era um, and the Babylonian era when we were trying to tear our neighbours' guts out. And the fact that an insect still managed to engage people then when being a naturalist wasn't even a thing to consider really speaks yeah. something. You know, it's an insect that lights up in the dark. It's magic. It, it's, it's been used to symbolise symbolise life after death, symbolise fertility, symbolise the other world, symbolise yeah, all sorts of things. Before I chop your head off, look at this glowing worm. <laughs> exactly. Isn't it great? Isn't it lovely? Right, stab, stab. stab. Um, so we really want to sort of tap into that and this, this cultural value of glowworms because what we want to do is like, you know, as, you know, as long as... Uh, the habitats we're looking at follow IUCN protocol of being suitable and that there aren't populations nearby and actually maybe habitat restoration is a better option or connection is a better option to show people actually right if you want to have these glowworms you've got to ensure you have plenty of long grass and scrubs so that the larvae can survive because they need lots of snails for that but you also have plenty of short grass as well for the adults to glow uh, and display so you create this mix of habitat uh, that is you actually rarely seeing these days you know where you have it not going completely wild but also not being mown and over tidy to within an inch of its life. Uh, it's a great little mix on a local scale. And I think the glowworms are basically like this contract to nature. Like, you know, if you don't do this, the glowworms are going to die out. So you're essentially you're like guilt tripping, um, you know, the, the communities to having this animal back, basically. It's not what I like to use, but essentially that's what you need. You're making this commitment, you know, glowworms for life, not just for Christmas. <laughs> um, but if you can do that... You know, you can create this wonderful habitat, this wonderful mix of scrub and grassland. Where you get slow worms, you get glow worms. You know, you get all these species are missing out on a local scale. So that's what we're trying to do with that. And I think that's where some of the other criticism from within ecological and conservation circles has come with this idea that somehow we're getting too populist, whatever that means. Yeah. And it just strikes me as like saying, this is our club and you can't come into our club. And like, we're all for engagement as long as you engage with our specific ideas and what we specifically want to do. And just a great example of this, like, what's wrong with that? I mean, you know, is it, is it this idea of like, you know, your little society, you have your little society that stays in the classroom at school and suddenly all the mainstream kids are getting interested in what you like and you don't like that? Is it like being a hipster and suddenly this indie band you thought only you liked suddenly being liked everyone else and you think, oh, it's not good now? Is that kind of thinking going here? Is rewilding Green Day's American Idiot album? <laughs> <laughs> Quite possibly. Is it, is, it, is, it, is it the Mumford and Sons to folk music, you know? Um, what's going on here? So I think there is a bit of that. But equally, if we want to have like a thriving natural world and like things to happen at a, you know, a, a, an influential political level, because, you know, at the end of the day, politics should respond to what people mm. want. We should be having ecology go mainstream in the same way the climate yeah, movement absolutely. has taken off. 
Um, and, you know, yes, you know, do things well, you know, have, you know, you know scientific advice going on for it, you know, don't, don't you know, anti-truth it at all. But yes, fully engage with that, you know, and, and when you look at reintroductions, look at things like glow worms and things that will have a significant social element as well. The, stalk, the White mm. Stalk Project being a good example of that. So, so this fear of it going populist, whatever this means. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really sure about that. One thing that really sort of struck me, it's an example I've maybe used in a couple of other podcasts and discussions, so I might have to stop using it shortly. It was an episode of Gogglebox uh, a year or two ago, and they were covering a news item looking at the reintroduction of the Checkered Skipper to yeah. Northamptonshire. Yeah, which is a great project for, you know, restoring the Checkered Skipper's range from a sort of biological species preservation level. But from an engagement level, which, you know, I'm sure there's people in, you know, butterfly conservation and other partners of the world who are trying to hard on engagement. Okay, maybe that works to the nice um, middle class family or retired couple who like a bit of nature and they think, oh, that's nice. But to the general populace, you know, on Gogglebox, they, the, the, fam- the family's watching this. Only one of them thought, oh, that's a nice project. The other Gogglebox families were like, what's the point? All that money for a brown butterfly. Yeah. That's the kind of, sort of situation you're working with. I don't find a lot of people in ecology conservation are so bubbled into how we think we're not really aware of what mm-hmm. other people think and how we can use that to our advantage uh whereas if it was a glow worm you'd in effect be doing similar work in terms of habitat restoration for checkered skippers but you'd be increasing that engagement and also long-term viability that people are going to be there to ensure you know it continues to happen at a community level with a species like the glow worm which is going to engage and not us you know who literally go oh shiny yeah. <laughs> because you know. Yeah, but this brings us back to the zoo. <laughs> that, you know, human nature is human nature. We've got to work into that. You know, we don't need capybara yeah. in a zoo. No one needs a capybara, but we have capybara because yeah. they're big, they're cute, and it brings people in. You know, you can yeah. engage with them because they're yeah. very docile and you can do meet and greets. And it's having this element. It's not needed. Totally, but totally. It, it's an awareness of what society needs sometimes from an animal point of view. Exactly, yeah. And actually, I think that's something from the zoo world that a lot of conservation can mm. really learn from because, you know, zoos are in this really unique place of drawing people who are the mainstream audiences who've chosen it as a nice day out over yeah. the cinema or the beach or whatever, where you can, if you do it well, get some really good yeah. messages in there. Uh, and when I was at Bristol Zoological Society, they were very big on their um, behaviour change um, schemes and campaigns. And that's something we're trying to do with Bear Wood as well, whereby you're showing people... Uh, the bears, wolves, things we used to have here, but showing people how mm. Britain has changed over time, which they weren't even aware about, or even that Britain has much wildlife beyond a pigeon and yeah. a couple of squirrels. And then at the end of it, you had a sort of map show, you're like, right, find your local woodland, and it's a map of the local area, so you can work that out, find out how to get involved, and you know, go go into your woodland and do there. And before COVID ruined everything, one of my plans for like next stage of bearwood rangering, because phase one was basically open bearwood, we uh, show people the wildlife, we do our talks, and we also get to do a lot of sort of behaviour monitoring of the animals we've got there as well, both the captive ones mm. and the wild ones. Actually which is really cool, you know, we are rangers in all sense of the word. But next phase I wanted to do was to start doing talks like we do for the captive stuff, but for wild invertebrates on site. So, you know, we were going to go and, um, you know, go through the meadows and the woodlands because at Wild Place we were very lucky to have some really good habitat that's been really mm. well monitored and maintained by the Native Species Conservation Team at Bristol Zoo. You know, collect insects that you found their wild and then, you know, have advertised talks in a day where, you know, you'd show kids um, the bugs in pots maybe get to handle them if, if possible, talk about the amazing things they do uh, and say that, right, these things are basically right outside your garden, they're in your park, go and look under logs, go and sweep through the grass and find them for yourself because it's right here and really engage with that on a, you know, on, on the child level because that's what really interests kids if there's yeah, something absolutely. there right in front of them. Um, something that was inspired to me like, one day in the summer season before when, you know, I was 
talking, showing the bears to people. And this kid comes up to me with a Pringles tube full of uh, insects he collected on site. And I got to really infuse him with yeah. all, all the different things in that. But obviously COVID ruined that. But that was the next stage of basically using the audiences that zoos attract to do the kind of things that a lot of the NGO conservation bodies try and do engagement-wise. But the people who go along to wildlife trust events, again, they tend to be that middle-class, or we like nature anyway, mm-hmm. sort of market. Whereas I think in the zoo, you can get much broader environment going there. So yeah, that is really something that we need to sort of work on, basically. Uh, and like it or not, you know, cats breeding reintroduction does that. You know, it does that engaging freedom of people. And so long as we're guided by scientific principles as we do it, then great. Because that's the other thing. I've, I've found some accusations about a lot of the populist wildly movement claiming it to be sort of unscientific but i think in a lot of cases we we're using the best of evidence to our ability there's a lot of unknowns particularly dealing with like the past uh, nature of the uk but conservation at the end of the day it is a human construct conservation isn't something that happens it's something that humans have decided to do and therefore conservation science informs what conservation does so you use it to the best of ability but ultimately to claim it's unscientific that's more your own philosophy, your own opinion. You know, you can use science to say that what we're doing isn't the right thing to do, but you could also use science to say it's the right thing to do. So it's about, you know, utilising different evidence sources. And yes, science has shown that there are reintroduction projects that have gone wrong, but evidence also shows the reintroduction projects yeah, that exactly. have gone right. And science right is all principles. about asking questions. So, so you yeah. know, we have to be asking those Completely, questions. completely. Mm. So the last question, and the big one for Into the Wild, is in a couple of sentences if you could pass on one bit of advice onto everyone regarding the natural world what would it be i think it would be to understand that the natural world by its definition is every mm. is everywhere it is the world it's not within a reserve or somewhere far away it's all around us um, like the force really in star wars <laughs> um and <laughs> end it there <laughs> Yeah, and to be honest, we should we should encourage and fight for having more of it, make mm. it wilder as possible. You know, that's exactly uh, Roy Dennis's philosophy, yeah. for example. You know, when it comes to bringing back eagles, that it shouldn't be this destination far away. This should be something you see in your commute to work. It's yeah, so it's a fight for wilder nature everywhere. So you know, whether that is you know wildcats in your local woods or glowworms um, in the local meadows, you know, it's to be, ensure that everyone has a right to it. And do remember, everyone, a glowworm is for life, not just for Christmas. <laughs> exactly. I like that yeah. because I'm now imagining some people do just get them for Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that that's one thing yeah, we're trying to avoid is this idea that we're just going to sort of flog glowworms on eBay and sort of sell yeah. them fairy no, lights. Like, no, 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 do not no, put them That's not how it's going to work. Um, <laughs> yeah. Pete, it's been an absolute (laughs) pleasure to talk to you today about, yeah, about about so much, about like zoos that we weren't even expecting to talk about and then reintroductions and everything. So it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show and I wish you all the best with your projects for the rest of the year. Thank you very much. Thanks again for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the projects and work Pete is working on, then you can follow him on social media. His tags are in the write-up of this episode. A reminder that any views or opinions expressed in today's show belong to the person who said them and do not represent anyone we have worked with or are affiliated with. If you enjoyed today's show or you're just a fan of Into the Wild, then you can say thanks by buying me a coffee. The link to our Kofi account is in the write-up of this episode. You can also get in touch with me at intothewildpod at gmail.com or on social media, Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. Whether you just want to say hello, share some thoughts on the episode, or let me know some nature news to go into next week's 60 Second Nature News. Whatever it is, feel free to give me a shout. But until next time, keep well, stay safe, and live the good life.